Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to the DFO Rundown Podcast with Frank Saravalli and Jason Greger on dailyfaceoff.com. Welcome to episode 41 of the Daily Face-Off Rundown. I'm Jason Greger alongside uh, Frank Saravalli coming to you live from our woodjerseys.com studios. You'll see my lovely Boston Bruins, woodjersey.com. You can go to woodjerseys.com. They are an official licensed NHL product and uh, they make your team and it is awesome. It's great. You get all different teams. I know Frank, uh, usually he'd be showing us his Toronto one, but guess what? Frank's on the road at the Stanley Cup. This is our Stanley Cup edition of the uh, the Daily Faceoff Rundown. Uh, Frank, how is Tampa Bay? It is humid. It, you know, you step one foot outside your door here and you're just melting. I think uh, I'd rather the 110 in Vegas than the 90 here and you're just dripping the entire time. But nonetheless, uh, thrilled, Jason, to be carrying and planting the flag on the road for dailyfaceoff.com for the first time game one of the Stanley cup final tonight. And, and uh, man, this town is ready. It's amped up everywhere you go. There was a plane flying around yesterday here, circling around the, the area where the arena is just with a banner in tow that said, go bolts. So I think they're ready for the Stanley cup. Well, hey, they, uh, they should know they were there last year. Think about it. They're one of the few fan bases who won a Stanley Cup without ever being in the building. So I would think uh, they're very amped up after uh, last year. And they were excited, but this year's a, a little bit different. And in my mind, Frank, uh, there's no, and hey, nothing against Montreal. They made it there. They deserve it to be there. They've earned it there. But Tampa Bay is clearly the favorite heading into this series. Well, they are, and they're not an, an they're not an overwhelming or enormous favorite by Vegas standards. Um, you know, and I, I think it's really interesting because just in talking to some people here and engaging in some different conversations with other writers and reporters, I, I you know I was thinking Montreal has a, a much better chance than we might realize. And I know that sounds funny to say, given that they just slayed Vegas, who beat Colorado, but in this case. I, I do wonder with some of the injuries that Tampa has, not just to Kucherov, but we knew heading into this playoff that Victor Hedman was essentially skating on one leg, one leg properly at least, uh, dealing with some kind of long-term knee injury that likely needs some correction in the postseason. And they've got a lot of different edges to their team, I think, over Montreal. But I think Montreal might be best suited, and we alluded to this in our last pod about the matchup that Montreal has here, you know, they're facing a team stylistically that's at least somewhat similar to Vegas. So they know how to attack it. I, I you know, I'm starting to lean a little bit towards Montreal in this series. Hmm. Yes. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't see it being a favorable matchup really at all. I just look the biggest difference between Tampa and Vegas, the strength down the middle, like it, like it's night and day different, yeah. especially when Chandler Stevenson was out of that series. So I, I think that's going to be the biggest one. I love Kucherov's uh, uh, avoidance of the question. What do you mean? What injury? I'm not hurt. <laughs> <laughs> I laughed at that. You, you know, it's the Stanley Cup final. And, you know, Montreal's, you know, you got Carey Price and, and you've got the defense. And, and I would say this, that um, Carey Price, without question, is the best goalie Tampa's faced so far in the playoffs. And that that's in, in the NHL today, you know, goaltending is, is so imperative, but what about Joel Armia? I know that I would say, ah, that's a big Armia. one. That's like Joel Armia along with uh, Corey Perry and, jo and Stahl have been an incredible line for Montreal. He's out for sure tonight. Uh, yeah, that's the belief. He didn't travel to Tampa and that he's in COVID protocol. Now we were waiting for a further update from the Canadians and we didn't get one on Sunday evening, just about his status moving forward because the thought was that he already had COVID in late March now, he could be one of those rare, you know, cases that ends up getting it again. We have seen that happen, but 
Um, you know, you're also curious with the testing protocol at this point, you know, is it a false positive? Is there any chance that he's back at some point in the series? And man, what a kick that is. If you're Joel Armia, like you go through this playoff run, you give it all. And then you wake up the day before you're supposed to leave for the cup final and you test positive for COVID-19 and you're out. I mean, I can't think of a tougher situation to go through. You know, one, it's got to be one of the tougher situations mentally to be sidelined in the Stanley Cup playoffs, knowing that, you know, for the most part, you're, you made it through on the other end and your body's healthy, but, you know, inside you're not. Yeah, it's, uh, it's brutal. Uh, coming up today on the pod, uh, Katie Serang will join us and uh, we'll, of course, talk the uh, Sh- Chicago Blackhawks uh, allegations and the lawsuits and everything that's going on with them and also just – her career because uh, Katie, she dives into some of the really difficult stories. She, she's able to uh, engage survivors and, you know, get them to, to talk on record about their experiences. And I think, I think it's incredibly uh, important work that she does. And I can imagine it's difficult at times. So uh, mm-hmm. Katie's going to join us today and, you know, we'll get her thoughts on the Stanley cup final, but it's more so going to be on the case of the uh, Chicago Blackhawks and just uh, overall, you know, some of the, her, her you know, horrific stories that are still going on uh, in the in the sporting world today, specifically in hockey and uh, how that's got to change. So I'm, uh, I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, it's going to be a really important conversation. And I think rightfully so, this story with the Chicago Blackhawks has taken center stage uh, at the Stanley Cup final. It's going to be a huge part, I believe, of the press conference that Gary Bettman and Bill Daly give before game one as they do every Stanley cup final. And you know, this is a story that's not going away. It's grown louder and louder and it's time for the league to address it. Yeah. I'm very curious, you know, Gary Bettman's a lawyer at heart. Um, I I suggest Frank, you know, you can answer the questions without answering the questions. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm, I'm not expecting, um, I think what a lot of people are hoping to hear today from the NHL, I'd be surprised if we hear it. Well, I don't think it's all that difficult and you don't need to be a lawyer to dance around it. We're launching an investigation into the Chicago Blackhawks and the incident from 2010 period, end of story, leave it at that. The fact the NHL to this point has said that they are not investigating the incident is what has raised so many red flags and and so much interest in this case. You know, we've seen a lot lesser events be investigated by the NHL over the last number of years and also other events around the uh, other major professional sports leagues that launch investigations. This is a critical, critical uh, allegation. And, and it's one that really deserves the time and, and attention from the NHL that to this point, they haven't been willing to give it. And so I think that's what I'm most curious to hear is if there is not an investigation, why not? And, and that's the answer that I think needs to be, uh, given to, you know, everyone in the hockey world. Yeah. And, uh, that's something we'll uh, dive into today later on with, uh, Katie, uh, here it, uh, it's uh, June 28th. Uh, it's officially one month from NHL free agency beginning and, uh, the Jack Eichel rumors, uh, you know, uh, Vegas people are suggesting, you know, maybe Vegas could pull it off. Man, they'd have to give up a boatload of assets to do it again. Uh, you know, the, the LA Kings, I still think are a good one, Frank, uh, a month away. There was some increase in conversation around Jack Eichel and, and Minnesota as well over the weekend. What do you, th- what do you make of that? Well, I mean, I don't think it's any secret that the Minnesota wild would like to add a center. I mean, that was one of the real mandates from Bill Guerin when he first took over the job. And the question is, I think the Minnesota wild really like their team. They like the, the, direction that they're trending in. Um, I'm curious really what assets they'd be willing to part with in order to make something like that happen. Cause obviously it's going to need to be a pretty significant haul. And when you're making that move, you better be darn sure, I guess that that's going to launch you immediately into Stanley cup contention. If you're going to be giving up lots of future assets. So it's a difficult trade to navigate for a team like Minnesota that isn't like right quite at that Stanley cup contender level just yet, but knocking on the door, but also like you want to make sure that things, you know, kind of don't go the other way. Right. When you, you know, you look at, at Jack Eichel, what have you heard on the latest? Is he having this surgery that allegedly was at the root of the, uh, the disagreement and the, you know, the start of the separation between him and the Sabres? The short answer is no one knows. Um, both Eichel 
Saints camp and the Sabres have been very quiet. They went through this period, I think it was three months that they agreed to where they, you know, we're going to put the medical stuff aside and just see how his body reacted and any potential rehab that was included in that. And so then, you know, we don't know the end result of that. No one's disclosed that there hasn't been a health update from the Buffalo Sabres. And to my knowledge, to this point, as the Sabres resisted, and I believe even the NHLPA weighed in with some guidance that Jack Eichel shouldn't have an experimental surgery like that one, um, that, there hasn't been a surgery, but you know, I think if there were, we would have heard by now. Okay. Yeah. And that's kind of where I was at. So it was just a, I'm wondering how much that's at play here with the NHL teams who are considering acquiring him. I assume that has to be pretty much the forefront of the conversation. The last thing you want to do is acquire a $10 million player, give up a boatload of assets, and then he's not even ready to start the season for you. And, uh, you know, he's, he's coming off a, a pretty significant uh, back surgery. So the, the, that's the unique wrinkle of this where we don't have it a lot of cases when you're talking about trading a, an elite player to other teams that, you know, there's probably some trepidation in acquiring him. When in other cases, teams were lining up. Yeah, I don't care. Like, I know this guy's healthy. We know what he can do. And when Jack Eichel's healthy, he's legit number one center. There's no question. Yeah, and I think that you know, when we first started the conversation about, about Jack Eichel a couple months back, one of the things everyone kept talking about was the contract being an impediment to getting something done. I don't think it's the contract at all. I think the number one question mark is the health. Um, you know, it, it's not just being ready to start the season. I don't think that's your fear with Jack Eichel. Obviously, you'd want him to hit the ground running in October. But I think it's the long-term effects. You know, you've got five years and $50 million remaining on this deal. You know, that's a, I know this contract is, is probably insured, but that's not what you want to be dealing with. It's Jack Eichel on your LTIR after giving up all those assets to get him. So that, to me, I think is going to be the big question mark. And there's no question in my mind that teams are going to want to pour over those medical records before ever making a deal. Yeah. So uh, we will look for that. Um, also, there, there's still a lot of players unsigned, Frank, and, and we're basically 20 days away from the Seattle being able to talk to free agencies on uh, free agents, excuse me, uh, on July 18th. And man, there's some real fear from teams that Seattle's going to come in and potentially, you know, scoop in more free agents, kind of go a, a, a different route than, than Vegas event. Vegas wasn't overly active in free agents. Mm -hmm. Heck, Derek England was a free agent and they still use their pick from Calgary to take him and then just signed him to a contract and they knew he wanted to go to Vegas. So I'm curious, is, is Seattle putting up a good smoke screen to make teams nervous or do you expect that Seattle will be different in their approach and that they will be signing some free agents and potentially some of the bigger names out there? I think they're going to be looking for sure. Um, you know, they've been making calls to agents about players that are pending, you know, unrestricted free agents and not you know, any sort of tampering. It's just, you know, checking in, Hey, we're the Seattle Kraken. And we, you know, at some point, you know, is your player going to make it to market kind of, kind of conversation. And so um, they've certainly been doing their homework behind the scenes and, you know, that's the chance and the risk, I think, for some teams that are leaving a lot of these players unsigned for purposes of the expansion draft. And I think that's one thing that the league has quietly pointed out behind the scenes as well for people that are concerned about teams that are tabling deals, you know, with a pending free agent like an Alex Ovechkin, for instance, and saying, hey, we have this done. We've, you know, verbally agreed to terms, but we're not going to sign it until after the you know, after the expansion draft, well, what, I mean, I don't, I think Ovi's a, maybe a poor example there, but what's to prevent Seattle from coming in and saying, Hey, whatever that, you know, offer is, we'll beat it. You know, we want you here, Gabriel Landeskog. We want you here, whoever it is. And so I think that's the opportunity that Seattle has for, you know, one or two players on the high end that they really target. I think some of the lower end guys, it's, you know, the window is important, but not that important other than to maybe get a sense of, you know, what it might cost and, and do some tire kicking to help evaluate the entire market in total. Yeah. I, I think, I know I've heard a lot of people suggest that all oh, teams are just going to do this. Well, I think they're underestimating because even if it's verbally agreed to you and I both know, Frank, there's a risk 
involved. And it's not like it, if, if all of a sudden a player, and let's use Gabriel Landeskog as an example, let's say him in Colorado had verbally agreed to a $7 million contract. Now, the only thing that they could offer that Seattle can't is eight years, of course. But what if Seattle came in and said, well, we'll offer you $8 million per year for seven years, right? There's, and then if Landeskog's agent's like, okay, there's nothing that Colorado could do afterwards to claim that, hey, wait a sec, we had verbally agreed to a contract because no, that's, that's the rules, right? So that's, that's the why, whole point of it is that yeah. Seattle has this, ex- it's literally exclusive for a reason to, to get that opportunity to do it. Um, and, and by the way, I did see a report and, and I'd have to double check and go back and read this, that Seattle can actually offer the eighth year. I have to go and look. I, I don't know if that's, but like that'd be a really interesting wrinkle as well. Well, yeah. Um, although I've always looked at the max when it comes to UFAs on eight-year deals, and they're pretty rare. But and how? I, I mean, that. how? How? How often do you really want to sign a player to eight years? That's the thing. Unless you're getting them coming out of their entry level deal, right? Or they're like the elite of the elite. I think it's very rare, right? I just you know you look at the the history of players and most of them, they'll see a dip. Like there's the odd guy who doesn't at 35 years of age, right? If you're 27 or 28, whenever you're signing, but uh, most of them will see it. So that would be uh, the only way I think you'd get eight years is if you were able to lower the AAV significantly, which is, you know, what I'm hearing, you know, the, the orders in the Nugent Hopkins camp, when they're having conversations, they're willing to go longer if the AAV uh, goes down. And, you know, that, that's a name, Frank, that I I've said it all along. I believe he will test free agency. Whether or not he signs somewhere else remains to be seen. But I just, I've always had a sneaking suspicion that Nugent Hopkins is uh, is going to just see what's out there for the first time in his NHL career. I mean, look, as much as he wants to remain an Oiler, doesn't he at least owe it to himself having gone this far and having, you know, played through the risk of of the final year of his deal? I mean, that's that's the way I personally would look at this. I mean it'd be a different story if the Oilers are saying to you point blank, if you make it to market, you're not coming back. You know, this is sort of our take it or leave it final approach. And, and if I was Ken Holland, that's maybe how I would be looking at this as well Is, you know, we we've made you a number of offers here. If you really want to stay, like you've said that you want to take one of these opportunities and, and we'll, we'll go for it. And if not, once you make it to market, well, then it's in our best interest as the Edmonton Oilers to then also pursue whatever may or may not be on the market as well at that point. That may be, and I've said this for a while, a better stylistic fit for the Edmonton Oilers in terms of what they need um, moving forward. Now, I, I, I can't, I don't know. I, so if you were to, Jay, if you were to bet or if you were to put percentages on it, what's the chance that he, he actually does explore the market? Is it 50-50? Is it more than that? I, th- I think it might be like 60, 40. I don't think it's an, an obvious one. Whereas like, you know, Tyson Berry's obviously testing the free agent market, right? No question. I think there's other guys that will test it for sure. But Nugent Hopkins, um, like I know they've had conversations and they've made offers. So to me, that still means that like the dialogue has, has not, you know, there's not a massive anger on one side or feeling disrespected by the other side or anything like that. It's just, oh, I think it's been very cordial. Yes. You know, from talking to both sides, that's what I hear too. So um, I, I would say every day that it gets closer, Frank, I believe it raises a percentage in favor of testing the market. Right. But the, you know, you've still got 20 days and NHL negotiations historically have come down to the wire on everything. So, um, you know, go back to Steven Stamkos and the Tampa Bay Lightning, right? Where you're at today. I uh, remember his free agency, right? That came right down to the wire. And, you know, even John Tavares before he left the Islanders that, you know, they had made the final offer the day before free agency. So it, that, it doesn't surprise me because the NHL, I just, there's, there's a mindset, um, you know, up until this recent CBA, it was always last minute. And in most cases beyond last minute, sadly, um, I think that Nugent Hopkins in their camp, once you get to the, to the 18th, that's when it becomes real because then Seattle's involved, right? And I think Seattle is the one team that might be able to offer Nugent Hopkins more than anyone else. And because like, I like Nugent Hopkins as a player, but I, I, I don't see if he's a center, he's a second line center. And he's not a center that you can necessarily rely on in the defense zone at key times because he can't win a face off very often. 
Um, he's a, well, the he's Oilers aren't paying him to be a center, though. That's the no, thing. I so if he so. wants to be a center and thinks he's a center and he wants to pursue center money, then that's a different conversation entirely. Well, and that's what I think it is, Frank. I think that's a big part of it because, you know, as a guy who's played center the majority of his career, and you know that if you're staying in Edmonton, you can still play center at certain times. But once Edmonton gets enough legit wingers, Drysaddle and McDavid aren't running together other than the odd shift. They're going to be running as the two top centers because that's that's their best way to success. Like, why wouldn't you have two elite centers rather than one and uh, and w- then one elite left winger? That does, just doesn't make as much sense. And so I think Nugent Hopkins looks and says, well, there's probably teams that would still pay me like a center. And I think that's, I would say, my gut feel. I think that would be me, a mistake. I would agree for any but... team that were to go to, to sign him as a center. Cause I think he's displayed in Edmonton, having been given the chance to do it, you know, with those two guys there that he probably shouldn't be. And so to pay him extra, to be your center, uh, you know, even on a team starting out fresh, I'm not sure makes a lot of sense. Um, well, you know, I think moving forward, the big question mark stylistically for the Oilers, and this is why I, what I keep going back to, I think he had 31 games on McDavid's line and the results were really underwhelming. He's not, he's not the finisher that needs to be in that spot. And if you consider the opportunity, the incredible opportunity that he had to play there, you need more out of that position. If you're going to be devoting major dollars to it. Well, here's the thing. And I looked up the numbers. So from not, from 2016 to 2018, and this is via naturalstatrick.com, uh, Nugent Hopkins points per 60, at five on five, he was 165th amongst forwards from 2016 to 2018. From 2019 to 2021, when he played with either Drysaddle or McDavid, he was 150th. So there's a little uptick because you're playing with the league's two best scores, but not a significant. But he should be like fourth. That's my that's my point. So it's not. Yeah, and that's that's what I've been saying for. I'm glad you looked up the numbers because they confirm what I think I've been seeing, which is he isn't producing enough for having played with those guys who have won or likely on Tuesday night to be winning the hard trophy two years in a row. Yeah. Hey, um, we can say there's no favorite in the Stanley cup final decisively. There's a decisive favorite in the hard trophy win. I think, uh, I think this is Connor McDavid's trophy to win. The, the only real question is going to be, and not that I care about it, but some people are going to be like, well, does he get 100% of the first place votes or is it 98 or 95? I'm, I'm actually fascinated by that because we had 100, yeah, 100 voters this year. Uh, we pared down our list at the PHWA. And I, I know, or I think, I have, uh, and just for full disclosure, I haven't seen the results and I don't know who voted for what. My guess is he's 90 plus first place votes. Is it 97? Is it 99? Did he get all 100? That to me, I think is the intrigue with the Hart Trophy voting. Well, Nikita Kucherov, when he had his dominant season a few years ago in 2019 and he had 128 points, he wasn't, you know, I was looking back, you have to go back to Gretzky in the 80s where you had somebody who was 100%. And that, and, and even Gretzky, who won all those hearts, he wasn't 100% every year. I think he was only ever 100% twice. So, um, you know, it should be darn close because he deserves yeah. it. That's how head and shoulders above everyone else he was. And, and to me, I think what's going to happen if he isn't 100%, you'll have some Oilers fans freaking out and I'll be like, why? Oh, did, come did, on. Did he, did he win the award? Yes. What's no? the difference? That's exactly my point. It doesn't matter. Right. It doesn't matter. That's it's why okay like, to be. And, and, and as long as that voter can justify their selection, that's like, that's literally the point of voting. <laughs> if everyone thinks the same way, why, like, what's the point in having an election? Yeah, exactly. So it, uh, it'll be very different. Uh, well, let's, let's get to our uh, big guest today brought to you by jock MKT. You can go to jockmkt.com, and it's perfect for the playoffs, baby. This is where you want to find, it's like the combination of fantasy hockey, as well as the stock market. When it comes to the NHL, you do it, any sport, fantasy sports and the stock market, and they basically intertwine and you want to find the players who you think are going to be great value. Buy them at the start of the playoffs. Maybe you sell them after game one. Maybe you wait until uh, the decisive game and see their stock rise. So check it out, jockmkt.com. Our next guest, I'm proud to call a good friend. We crossed paths initially while she was covering the New York Islanders. I was covering the Philadelphia Flyers back in the day, and she has since become a superstar investigative reporter, also spending time 
at ESPN.com before going to The Athletic, where she has covered and broken some of the biggest stories in sports. The DFO Rundown is pleased to welcome Katie Strang to the podcast. How are you doing, Katie? I'm good. How are you, Frankie? I'm good. So thanks for joining us. We wanted to dive into uh, the story that has really taken center stage and deservedly so in the NHL here in Tampa at the Stanley Cup final. And that is the allegations of sexual assault uh, with former Chicago Blackhawks video coach Brad Aldrich and the alleged cover up that's gone on since that alleged abuse in 2010. I was wondering if you could start by sort of walking us through the basics of the story for people that haven't gotten caught up on it to this point, and then kind of really tell us where things stand at the moment. I know there's been lots of new reporting, uh, especially in the last couple of days here. Sure. Yeah. So um, at some point in May, uh, there was a lawsuit filed on behalf of um, at least one former Blackhawks player who in the lawsuit said that um, he had been sexually assaulted uh, by a video coach, Brad Aldrich, during um, the 2010 season, um, and that the Blackhawks, you know, apparently mishandled um, that sexual assault allegation um, when that incident was disclosed to the team. Um, since that lawsuit was initially filed, there have been some significant developments. Um, and I should also note, so WBEZ out of Chicago has done a terrific job. They broke the story about the lawsuit. Um, and TSN's request had has also done superb work on this as well. And just in terms of um, you know, moving the story along and, and really enhancing people's knowledge of, of some of the context of the situation. But um, in terms of recent developments, uh, what I consider a bit of a, a game changer in terms of coverage is Rick Westhead reported about um, an alleged meeting that took place during the 2010 postseason run for the Blackhawks, um, where a skills coach, a highly respected skills coach named Paul Vincent, um, was reportedly told about um, the sexual assault and made it clear that he would escalate um, those allegations to people in the front office, um, including Stan Bowman, Al McIsaac, um, Jim Gray, you know, the, the mental skills coach, um, and John McDonough. Um, and according to Paul Vincent, who has gone on the record with numerous outlets, in, including our own, he said that um, when he did disclose this incident and urge the front office to both take this seriously and, you know, file a police report with the sex crimes divisions of uh, of the Chicago Police Department that the front office declined to do so. Um, so that was was certainly, I think, one that changed the landscape of this um, whole situation a bit because then, you know, it not only just becomes about the alleged incident and the alleged perpetrator um, in the alleged heinous act itself, but also it adds an element, and invariably this happens with cases like this, of who knew what and when, and you know when that information was disclosed, um, how was it dealt with, right? So now you're dealing with institutions, not just an isolated incident. Um, and then since then, um, this, is a, this is a really important and critical dis distinction and, and something that we should all take away is that, you know, in, in 2013, after Brad Aldrich, he was let go um, or left the Blackhawks, uh, you know, the circumstances of his departure remain unclear. Um, whether they forced him to go, what happened there. But anyways, he ended up, after a few other stops, he ended up at a high school hockey team in Houghton, which is in northern Michigan. It's in the Upper Peninsula. And while he was with that team, he was arrested and convicted of criminal sexual contact um, with a teenage hockey player. Um, he went to jail for that offense and, um, you know, so that adds another element of 
you know, if the Blackhawks were told about this um, and did not notify Aldrich's subsequent employers, um, did not notify the police, you know, there there does appear to be you know, an incident there, there was an incident because he was convicted um, that followed his time in Chicago. So now that high school student has um, joined, or I shouldn't say joined, he has filed his own lawsuit with the same attorney that is representing the Blackhawks player that filed the initial lawsuit. Um, Also, you know, claiming that the Blackhawks Uh, mishandled the allegation and that they provided positive references that allowed him to move on um, to subsequent positions in hockey where he exploited his position of authority um, in in taking advantage of young kids. Okay. So, so thank you for spelling out all the details and the background. Um, One, you know, one thing that stood out to me as a question mark and not that it really makes a big difference, but do you have any indication to this point in your reporting as to whether the the alleged positive references that the Blackhawks made, were they written or do you know, or were they verbal? You know, that's a great question. And one that I've been trying to get an answer to as well. And the simple answer is I don't have, um, I don't have knowledge of, of that with the degree of specificity that I'd like. I can only cite what's been in the lawsuit, which has just, um, indicated positive references. I can tell you that that's something that's really uh, interesting to me, and I would imagine would be, you know, a pretty pivotal, you know, point in any case. Uh, and so I'm certainly looking to track down that information, but I have not come across that yet. So, Katie, it, it seems like this case, it's it's almost like there's there's it's twofold. You've got the first one that these allegations they didn't take serious enough, and you know Aldridge got to finish out the 2010 playoffs, and then you have the potential for the for the the positive uh, recommend you know uh, positive review on on a former employee to to other people. So do you and you have so much experience covering these type of cases? Do you see it as like two errors are is one more egregious than the other allegedly if if they both occurred and have you been able to uncover the depths of you know what because in your article you wrote that Aldridge you know he propositioned and, and offered uh, to perform oral sex is that just one of the uh, the allegations you know was there more uh, you know sexual assault involved in that case allegedly when you say in that case, do you mean in the Blackhawks case? Yeah, with the Blackhawks players, yes. I mean, that's the um, incident that was disclosed to Paul Vincent. Um, you know, whether there was more pervasive conduct um, on Aldrich's behalf um, that we have not yet become aware of, that remains to be seen. Like that, you know, might be, it's possible more people could come forward. It's possible that we may learn more about his conduct, you know, with the Blackhawks or previously in, or in subsequent stops um, through the discovery process as this lawsuit unfolds. Um, in terms of your first question, and I, you know, I try not to put sort of like a, a value grade on, on what transgression is worse um, as it relates to anything involving you know, sexual assault or, or the potential mishandling of sexual assault allegations. But I can say that you know, in my experience covering these cases, there are, are generally like sort of two phases, right? One where you're trying to um, look into the alleged perpetrator, right? And what you try to do is you try to determine and discern patterns of behavior, right? Um, people that prey on um, someone in terms of like distorting a power imbalance or who exploit a position of authority to prey on others. Uh, they don't do it in a vacuum. They often do that and hone that technique over, over time and they develop patterns. Um, so that's you know one thing that I've certainly looked into in his previous stops and subsequent ones and have found. And then um, invariably like the second phase is always, you know, what allowed a person to operate undetected for a significant period of time. And whether that's, you know, a level of institutional negligence, if there were people aware of certain behavior that did not report 
um, or disclose that behavior, whether they did not handle it appropriately, whether they um, did not notify the appropriate authorities or oversight bodies, that's always sort of like the second element, right? Like you wanna peel back the lens, take the 30,000 foot view and really attack, you know, who knew what and when, how did they handle, you know, information that came to them? And if there was mishandling or there was any sort of negligence, um, what is the practical impact of that, you know, over, that misstep or, or oversight that, um, you know, did that contribute to a person being able to move on and continue this behavior elsewhere and endanger others? The word negligence, I think, is is very powerful in this case because, you know, I've read a lot of your stories and, well, they all around sexual abuse. The one thing seems to be a, a lot of these uh, predators did have people who were negligent. They, you know, in hindsight, people, oh, geez, I, I saw, you know, looking back, I should have seen that that was off and, and I didn't. Um, is, is that when you do all your reporting, is that one of the things you find that we're still, even in 2021, there's a lot of us, maybe just as humans, who we, we all say we would do the right thing and we all think we would know what the right thing should be, yet these cases keep happening. Are these, are these predators just that smart to know how to, to weave through it so people don't call them out on this? Because from outsiders are always wondering why, and I, I don't want to attack anyone because it's happened for so many people who I think have good intentions, but never act on them. In all your study, and what, what have you come up with that why so many people in different cases are, are, are and, and not, not vindictively negligent, but are just negligent? So that's a wonderful question. And I think it really gets to the heart of like the dynamic of sexual abuse and sexual um, offenders. And I'm really glad that you asked. I, I think there are two really critical points here. One is that, you know, when we hear of sexual predators, like I think we tend to, as human beings, think of someone um, that's not like us, right? Someone that looks different, acts different, um, that they walk into a room and they, you know, necessarily emit this like creepy vibe, right? Like that it's the stranger in the trench coat that pops out of the bushes. Well, that is very rarely the case. I mean, I think the first step to being vigilant about situations like this is to recognize these people often thrive undetected for so long because of their um, place in the community, right? Like they thrive on cachet and charisma and connection to community. Like these are, these are people that we might consider um, good neighbors, teachers, coaches, um, you know, family friends. And I think so recognizing that you know, even though it's human nature to try to other someone um, that oftentimes people that are victims of abuse, it happens at the hands of people that are um, very close to them. So that's, you know, one element of this. Now that I'm thinking of it, I think there really are three elements. Two, um, I think people feel nervous about sometimes speaking up when they don't feel like they have hard evidence or firsthand witness, you know, eyewitness accounts. And I think a lot of people feel leery of even talking about sexual abuse and are uncomfortable, don't have the language to communicate and articulate concerns and, and so naturally default to, yeah, maybe I've heard something, maybe I got sort of like a bad vibe, maybe I have a gut feeling, but like, that's really not my place to say. And the potential of ruining someone's reputation um, is prohibitive, right? Like I, I, I'm uncomfortable coming forward maybe because I don't have anything hard to go on. Um, and unfortunately, you know, I had a sexual abuse survivor once tell me this and I think it's so prescient and also universal. Silence is like an incubator for this. So the more people that don't voice concerns or speak up when they see something that might register as a bit odd or inappropriate, um, you know, the more a person can sort of sense that they can blur the lines and push boundaries and stuff like that. Um, the third element, which, you know, I think is becoming more, you know, there's a more general awareness in our, in, in society now is that, you know, grooming um, happens not just to 
you know, in a case of like a sexual offender, not just a kid, an athlete, a student, it happens to the parents as well. So, you know, where a sexual offender or predator will groom a kid by, you know, um, special treatment or gifts or positive feedback, um, or, you know, playing time sometimes, uh, they will often groom the parents as well, right? They'll work really hard to gain that parent's trust, to gain the parent's favor, um, to develop a relationship with them as well. Um, and that allows them to not only, you know, get close to someone, um, but to earn a level of trust and rapport with the parents so that even if the, some of those feelings do crop up, um, they might be you know, more reluctant to report those because they consider that person um, a friend. Every person, Katie, that speaks up about sexual assault is a credible voice. But what strikes me about this case is that Paul Vincent is extremely credible and he's on the record and he's front and center. He's well-respected in the hockey world. And oh, by the way, he's also a former police officer. You know, and I think with him on the record, that's what, to me, what sets this, you know, case apart and it puts it in a little bit of a different light. And so what shocks me, Katie, is that we've gotten to this point and this story has obviously continued to grow louder and louder, asking for the NHL to address it. And in a quote to you and your reporting last week, the NHL says there is not an investigation. You know, where, where in your mind is this heading? Why hasn't there been an investigation at least started by the NHL. And, you know, as Gary Bettman and Bill Daly take, you know, center stage for their, their press conference before game one tonight at the cup final, you know, if, if we could put on, you know, give you a crystal ball, what are you anticipating hearing? That's a great question. And one that I have been talking with people about um, over the past couple of days, I'm very curious to see how the NHL handles questions today about this because they will get them um, and whether they're willing to divulge any sort of like scenarios under which an investigation would be initiated um, whether an investigation, if it is initiated, uh, will be outsourced to a, a neutral independent third party, which I think is important from a propriety standpoint, um, or whether they'll just sort of, um, you know, deflect under the guise of ongoing litigation, which, you know, we see in a lot of different cases, um, not necessarily with the NHL, but with, with other corporate entities and such. Um, let me get and that's your... been the response from the Blackhawks, by the way, of course, has been we can't sure, comment on sure. pending litigation. Now, one important thing to note in Bill Daly's comment to me is he said there is no like current ongoing investigation. You know, that does leave some wiggle room, perhaps that, you know, is it possible that there the NHL has looked into this in the past? I suppose it is. Um, so th those are some of the questions that I would like to you know, nail the league down on. It, it's really tough in like, you know, sort of the pan pandemic world of like Zoom press conferences that there's not a ton of opportunity for like follow-up questions. Or if you, if you go down a line of questioning, if you don't feel like it's sufficiently answered, there's not a lot of room for follow-up questions. So um, I'm hoping that it'll be like kind of a collective effort today um, as, you know, Bill Daly and Gary Bettman do take questions. Um, you know, and I also think that quote left wiggle room that they that they may initiate an investigation the more information comes out. Getting to your first point, I was mowing the lawn yesterday and I was thinking about the very thing that you said about how credible um, Paul Vincent is. And like you, I have not heard a single person that knows Paul Vincent um, that says anything other than like he's just a really salt of the earth stand up guy. Uh, that they're not surprised that players would go to him of anyone with allegations of this sort, just because um, he has such a deep level of um, trust with players and respect. And I was like mowing my lawn thinking about this last night. I'm like, God, when I go, I really hope people talk about me like they talk about Paul Vincent, because like you really get the sense that he is someone um, that is a safe haven to people for a lot of different reasons. Right. But that, the players feeling, you know, willing to go to him, I think tells you a lot about him and 
as does the fact, as you pointed out, that he's willing to go on the record um, to substantiate that reporting because in a lawsuit, that means that he'll, he will, he will also have to testify to that or be prepared to, um, you know, corroborate. And he said publicly he's willing to do that. And he said he will. So that carries Mm -hmm. a ton of weight for me. Yeah. and, And look, I mean, I think that's, you know, we have someone that is stepping up that, um, you know, is willing to go on record and put their name and their face out there to support it. And it almost in some ways reading the comments felt like it was freeing to him to finally get this off of his chest and say, you know, this has been bothering me for a long time. And I think what is disturbing to me makes my stomach turn has been sort of the response or lack thereof from the NHL and also from the Blackhawks. And it's sort of hiding behind this pending litigation to there's been no response. And it's almost been like, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the feeling I'm getting is, and I think a lot of other people and fans of the game are getting is, you know, let's, let's see if we can wait this out. And and hopefully this story just goes away. And I think everyone is here. We're, the reason why we had you on to talk about this, the reason why, you know, Gregor had Rick Westhead on his show last week at Edmonton is we're, you know, this can't go away. We can't let this be swept under the rug. This needs to be addressed. This story is not going away. Um, you know, they, they may hope to ride this out and wait this out, but this story won't go away. Um, you get a good sense, I think, when, you know, a lawsuit starts and you start looking into it and you start, you know, doing document requests and pulling police files. Like, you get a sense of what's sort of there. Um, and there's a lot of stuff to dive into with this case. Uh, you know, he had he exited several different positions in hockey under dubious circumstances, um, which again goes back to this idea of patterns of behavior. And you talked about, you know, what made your stomach turn. I'll tell you something that really um, struck me and that I found unsettling. So I was looking through the police report from the Houghton Police Department this weekend. And in that police report, there is a section that basically identifies the police department's contact with Aldrich's previous employer. So the Chicago Blackhawks, Miami University, and Notre Dame. And all three of those places, when asked about the nature of his departure, um, declined to reveal information about why he left absent a subpoena or a search warrant. So I'm I'm not an employment lawyer. I don't know if that's standard operating procedure, but the fact that, um, you know, we know from that police report um, from others that he left Miami for under suspicion of unwanted touching of an adult male. Um, And we know that he left the Chicago Blackhawks shortly after um, this alleged incident was reported to the front office. So, the fact that um, it feels like those institutions are being very reluctant to share information in cooperating with a law enforcement investigation, and this is back in 2013, um, I find disturbing. Yeah, 100%, Katie. And you know, Frank talked about you know having one voice. Well, Nick Boyton's on record as saying this, I saw Brent Sopel, a former member of the Blackhawks in 2010, retweeting, um, you know, these allegations. That's very rare. You know, historically, the NHL is, you know, we don't talk about anything. And and the fact that you have two players essentially saying, hey, this story is true, right? Like Nick Boynton didn't, didn't mince his words. It was pretty clear what he said. So like that in itself, is that is, is there, if there's any, you know, one sliver of positivity here, could this maybe be the, the crack in opening, you know, and it happens in a lot of sports and, and you mentioned the term institution. And I think that's, that's a fair term that, you know, maybe it's starting to change to suggest that, you know what, no one's judging Nick Boynton. No one's going to judge Brent Sobel. People are going to say, good for you to, uh, to, to say something now. And, and Frank alluded to maybe being a relief for a lot of people involved. How do you read the fact that you actually have players, Kay? Because you've done so much great work on so many different stories. It's hard to get people involved sometimes to actually speak on the record. 
It's really hard. And I do think there is, you know, a, a culture in hockey, one of both like stoicism of like playing through pain, playing through injury, um, you know, not wanting to be a distraction, not wanting to rock the boat. And I, you know, I think that can lead to, you know, unfortunately, sometimes people feeling like they can't speak up and they can't, uh, you know, be vocal and emphatic in support of, you know, teammates in a situation like this or about, you know, a situation that they know about that is inappropriate. Um, so I am heartened to see people like Nick Boynton and Sopel, like feeling willing and comfortable speaking up. Um, it'll be very interesting whether other people do as well. Um, you know, I, I hope that like the tide is turning in terms of, you know, there is a lot of like stigma and shame around sexual abuse um, in any sport, at any age, um, in any scenario. But I hope that we're learning more about that to the point where people, you know, feel comfortable and are emboldened to speak up, especially in, in sort of service to others, right. To spread awareness and, and to help protect um, it happening from other people. So yes, I do. I did find that affirming. Um, but I'll tell you what, like one thing that I always tell people, and I get asked this all the time because of the work that I do. And whenever a story like this comes up, I always get asked like, how common is this? And my answer to that is, I think it's much more common than people think. I really do. Um, this is the bulk of what my day-to-day -day reporting focuses on. And I'm very busy. Um, and I don't see that abating anytime soon. If you ask anyone in hockey or anyone in like competitive sports rather, um, you know, everyone has someone, you know, one or two degrees of separation that, you know, has encountered some inappropriate behaviors, has encountered some, um, you know, coach or position, you know, person of authority who has exploited that in some way. I think this is much more common than and more pervasive than people think. Now, this, this certain scenario is, um, unique in some ways, but in some ways, um, you know, it, it's a pattern that we are seeing all over the country in youth sports, in club teams, in college hockey programs, et cetera. And I think that's something we need to be really aware and really vigilant about. It, it's a, it's a massive problem in society for sure. And, and, and if sports has to become the leader to get it talked about even more as painful as that is, uh, I applaud you, Katie, for, for doing the work and, and doing all these stories, you know, uh, you know, a story similar in Chicago, well, not similar, but in, in Chicago about Adratus and, you know, you uncovered that story and that went on for decades. I have to ask you is, when, when you report on all these stories, because I, I have a few friends who, who are girls that I, I grew up with who unfortunately got raped and hearing their stories, like they went into detail with me and, and it's, it's awful to hear that. And, and instantly it, there's rage that comes out at times and you want to be able well, to tell me who they are because you literally want to do harm to them. When you're covering <laughs> these stories, how, how are you able to to continue on because I would think at times like it can be really draining to have to now I've got to interview another survivor and I like that term more than victims is survivors that that, that went through all these horrible things and, and different people at different times and different ages how how have you found that you're able to keep your emotional sanity through all of this because I'm, I'm sure there's lots of stuff that you hear that you can't officially even write on because you don't have it 100% collaborated. So you want to make sure you're protecting yourself. How do you, how do you go through that on a data by day basis? That's a great question. And I appreciate you asking. Um, I mean, I have a wonderful therapist. Uh, I drink a lot of wine and I eat a lot of pasta, um, to kind of eat my feelings sometimes. Um, but you're right. Like it, it can be very, dispiriting. It can be very demoralizing. It can be, um, very draining. And, um, it, there is a deep, you know, some, there is a deep well of anger that I have, um, when I hear these things sometimes, but, you know, I try to channel that in a very positive way to fuel, um, my reporting and be very dogged and tenacious about my reporting as a result. Um, but, it's hard. I will say this also, um, you know, people assume that because it's so dark that, you know, 
it's um, all like sort of depressing work. Yeah. However, um, the reason that I do it is one, you know, I think it's important and it's, it feels like very purpose-driven work and I think it's necessary. But for all of like the darkness and depressing elements of this, there is always like sort of this other side um, that is uplifting and in some cases like very triumphant like in terms of the human spirit prevailing and i'll give you a great example so thank you for um touching back on the chico adratus case that's a story that i have spent like the better part of the past two years investigating and still am and um i have the two of the survivors that are members of the federal lawsuit in that case um, are about 20 years apart in age. They didn't know each other at the time. They intersected and overlapped with Chico Adratus at different stages of their career, um, but are both survivors of his abuse. And through, you know, talking about what happened to them, they've become really good friends and they actually started um, a 5013C nonprofit to help um, other male survivors of sexual abuse, particularly in the hockey world. Um, and to just really create a sense of like support and infrastructure um, for those victims and, and to provide them with resources and solidarity. And so something like that, I mean, that makes me so proud to know like that, you know, they're on like, you know, they're sort of really um, being very deliberate in their path towards healing. And, and part of that comes from helping others and, and that they're doing that together. And, and I think that's a wonderful um, service that they're providing and a wonderful, you know, sense of support and solidarity. And that makes me feel really proud and really good about, um, you know, sometimes where the reporting can end up. Well, Katie, I just wanted to say thank you. Um, you know, this is some of the most important journalism work being done. And I, I say not in sports, but in the overall industry and field. And, um, you know, you can see that dogged approach in terms of, you know, how you dig in on stories, get the information, you know, the path that you go through to verify everything. It's wonderful work. It's so important. Uh, we stand with you and, and just want to say thank you. And we appreciate you, you joining to dive in and, and talk about this case as it continues to emerge. Happy to do it, guys. Thanks for having me on. Katie Strang, uh, that man, what? I, I, I Love seems like a the, maybe the wrong word, but I just love the work she's doing. It, it's so important, and you know her diligence to this story and, and to help so many others. It's fantastic. I, I credit uh, you know the people in this specific uh, case and the allegations uh, for speaking up, Frank. And you know hopefully uh, hopefully there is a conclusion. And I'm, I'm curious to see. I know you you know you'll be at the press conference uh, today with Batman and, and Daly, and it's it's going to be interesting. I the, as, you know as Katie said, the story's not going away. Well, and you know what? Kudos to some of the outlets like The Athletic, like TSN that are devoting resources to this. You know, as media and digital media continues to evolve, like those are some of the positions, the investigative reporting that unfortunately get left behind in budget cuts. And you see, you know, just how important that work is to bring these stories to light. You know, we need to keep those things going. And I think Katie is a, a shining example of that. It's, you know, her work has touched all sports, unfortunately. And yes. I think that's what kind of hit me right between the eyes is, you know, the fact that she covers this and she's very busy, like that's, it's heartbreaking. Well, I, I, I spoke to somebody uh, uh, from the RCMP in Alberta and their, their child pornography uh, division has grown three times because wow. it's, it's that busy. Now I ask, is that because you didn't have a big division to start? And that's a small part of it, but it just continues to grow and develop. And so I think we as a society no longer can, can have our head in the sands. And, 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 and I know it's hard to think about it because no parent in the right mind would ever want their child to go through with that. Whether they're, whether they're six, 16, 26, it doesn't matter the age of, of, of a victim in this case. Right. We need we need less survivors because that means there's fewer victims. And I think as society overall, it's something that we have to be more aware of and 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 be more communicative with other people. So these these perps can't just, you know, as Katie said, they walk among us in a sense because they don't look like how they used to be portrayed on television and in stories. Mm -hmm. Yeah, really well said. Um, you know, difficult transition, but not to change gears uh, as we get back to hockey to wrap. Any update on your end on Oscar Clefbaum and his situation with the Oilers? 
Yeah, well, Oscar Clefbaum, for those who don't know, he had uh, shoulder surgery again. He's got arthritis in his shoulder, Frank. And every medical expert I talk to, arthritis is not something you can, you know, you try to manage it. You're not going to cure it. And so the best case scenario for Oscar, and he was very open when he had the surgery, was he was hoping to get back to a point where he could just live a normal life and be pain-free, right? Play with your kids, you know, do the simple things that the average guys like us do. To, to get back and put your shoulder through the strain of training, number one, to be an NHL player, and then playing is a totally different thing. And, you know, he's had the surgery. Um, my sources tell me that right now, the odds of Oscar Clefbaum starting this season in Edmonton are extremely low. And I don't want to say they're, you know, and that means to me, they're probably low to playing again, but I, I can't go that far because we never know how the healing process, maybe in a year or so it, it you know, his mindset might change and he, and he wants to give it another go. But right now, Frank, I, I would think it's leaning heavily towards uh, not seeing Oscar Clefbaum uh, in Edmonton for the upcoming season, uh, just because of the, of the risk potentially of him re aggravating it and putting his shoulder right back to where he was. Like he was in so much pain this off season, discomfort all the time. Yeah, that's uh, that's disappointing to hear. And, and he would be such a big part of the Oilers blue line moving forward. But at the same time, it's better if the Oilers know that now or soon so that they can make adjustments and spend that LTIR space accordingly. So um, you know, that's just one of many layers to an interesting Edmonton offseason, the most fascinating and important in Oilers history. So we'll have to keep an eye on that. You betcha. It'll be a following story. I know you'll have an info on it at dailyfaceoff.com along with myself. Uh, enjoy your first Stanley Cup as a member of the dailyfaceoff.com team. Uh, get down there, represent, and uh, we'll talk to you on Friday. Thanks for listening to the DFO Rundown with Saravali and Gregor. Keep it locked on dailyfaceoff.com and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from to never miss an episode.